Good rainy morning to all of you guys this morning. Thanks for being here. If you have a copy of the Bible or an app on your phone or whatever, uh, open it up to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. We'll be reading uh, verses 21 through 32. Let us remember as we read these verses that um, this is the Word of God, and the Word of God is always given with grace. In fact, moreover, the Word of God is a grace. So let us begin reading Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 32. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Good morning, Grace Life. Leave your Bibles open to that passage. I'm going to pray and ask God to bless our time in His Word and to remove any distractions so that we can focus on this. If you're joining us for the first time and I have not had the pleasure of meeting you, I'm Tommy Clayton, lead pastor here at Grace Life Church, and we're in our seventh year as a church plant. We've planted one other church. We've sent a missionary to Ireland, and we're seeking to serve the city in multiple ways, and we're glad that you could join us today. I hope I get the opportunity to, uh, to catch up with you and connect to you afterwards, but if I don't, just a couple of house cleaning things. We don't pass an offering plate here. We have a donation and a tithing box in the back where our people regularly give. What you can also drop in that box, and I'm telling you now before I forget, because some things that, that we're going to see in God's Word may provoke you. You may have questions. You may want to meet. You may want some counseling, and that's great. We'd love to connect with people, whether you're a faithful longtime member, or whether you're a first-time guest. And we have a Connect card back there on top of that box. You can fill out as much information as you're comfortable. Just a couple of people will be the only ones to see that. We're not going to exploit you or sell your data or anything like that or harass you. So I wanted to get that out of the way so that we can all focus on the message. Now I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump in together. You, you are joining us in not the middle. You're really on the front end of a study that we're doing through this entire letter. Romans, we call it a book, but it's a letter in the New Testament. It's an epistle that the Apostle Paul wrote to Christians in Rome who had formed churches. And so we're studying through this entire epistle, this letter, all 16 chapters, and hopefully this will be the last message in chapter 1. And then we'll take a little break, and then we'll jump back into chapter 2 later. So let's pray and ask God to empower us today to hear this, to understand it, to obey it, to be encouraged by it to be led into repentance by the Holy Spirit, if that's how we need to be challenged. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much 
that we even have a copy of your word in our own language, and we have the promise of the author, your Holy Spirit, who, who inspired this, Lord, and who moved men to write it, and who supernaturally and providentially has preserved it over centuries of abuse and twisting and perversion and people slandering it and trying to attack it and eliminate it, and yet here we have it, all 66 books and letters preserved for us, Lord, and we have your Holy Spirit who has promised to interpret it and give us help when we ask. And we do ask for your spirit to help us today, Lord. Open our eyes the way Paul prayed for the churches. Open the eyes of our hearts so that we can see more of Jesus in this passage, Lord. And be moved and be helped and be changed and be transformed forever. And give me power. Lord, I need your power. I feel my weakness today. I feel the attack of the enemy. Lord, to talk about the things we're going to talk about. Help me to do it in a gracious way, in a truthful way, in an honest way, and in a loving way, Lord, the way that you have, have written about these things in Scripture. And I pray this will be an open invitation and challenge to anyone who struggles with these issues, whether it's a, been a private struggle or a, a struggle that's been the defining theme in their life and they have thrown caution to the wind. I pray that you would be gracious to all of us today and be gracious to this church. And thank you for those who are joining us on, on live stream or, or many who may find themselves watching this and have no idea who we are, who I am, or wh why they're watching this YouTube. I pray that you would do a work that only you can do. Surprise us, Lord, as you have in the centuries with how you, your truth touches people, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when we started in Romans, we started in Romans and I told you I told you about uh, four figures, four historical figures who were radically changed by the message of this book. Four different people whose names you would probably recognize if you've been a Christian for very long or if you read Christian history and literature. And uh, each of them was struggling with something. If you remember that first introductory sermon in this message in Romans, one was Aurelius Augustine. You know him as St. Augustine. St. Augustine's in Florida, St. Augustine's in heaven. If you've ever wondered how to pronounce those things, okay? Aurelius Augustus, St. Augustine, he was afraid of God. He, he was radically changed forever when he read Romans 13 in a garden in Italy. Martin Luther was angry at God. He, he had never understood the free offer of grace that came through the gospel. And one day in a tower, translating and studying the book of Romans, he was transformed forever. John Wesley was anxious about God and somewhat confused. And at Aldersgate in London, he heard somebody read actually the preface to Martin Luther's commentary, I believe on either Romans or Galatians, and God saved him from his sin. And then Elise Fitzpatrick, who was just sad about God, and through studying Romans, had her eyes open and was converted. But there was one person I didn't tell you about that I wanted to wait until we got to this passage. You may or may not know her name. It's uh, Rosaria Butterfield, Rosaria Butterfield, and she was saved around 2000 or 2001. She was very confused about God, and, and years later, she, uh, what I admire about her is she, she waited about 12 years to even write about her encounter. It was such a radical conversion. She was confused about God, and she was in a prison. She was in a spiritual prison of her own devising, of her own making. She identified as a leftist, lesbian professor who despised Christians. She was a tenured English professor at Syracuse University in New York. She was gaining traction as a respectable academic and scholastic voice. In fact, she was working on her second book on the rise of the religious right and how they, they in her words, attacked queers. That was the book she was writing on. And in the middle of that book, she was interrupted. <laughs> she loved our God. When he saves us, he interrupts us, doesn't he? And it's a glorious interruption. And through a friendship, a surprising friendship with an older Presbyterian pastor and his wife in her town who invited her into their home for two, two years, opened their living room to her and said no questions off the table. Every week she went into their home and sometimes multiple visits. They encouraged her to read the Bible. They prayed for her. They answered her questions. And bam, the Spirit of God got a hold of her. And I want to read her testimony I apologize if it's hard for you to follow quotes. I didn't want to put it up here because it's a little bit lengthy. But try to follow as best you can. And if you want these notes later, email us. I'd be happy to give them to you. 
She says, I was 35 years old, called myself a lesbian, and worked as an activist and English professor in New York when I first encountered the words from Romans, and she lists verses 24 through 28, the middle of what Brent read earlier, especially the part about homosexuality. Huh, I muttered. Seems like a dangerous hate speech or some other devastation designed to ruin my life. God's word brought me to a line in the sand and a hole in my heart. After many years, don't, don't gloss over that, after many years. You know, we want conversion like right now, and then they're in the front row, and they understand the Bible instantly, right? doesn't always work that way. After many years and much struggling, one night God used the words of Romans 1 as he led me to repentance and faith. Through the crucible of conversion, I learned that the central thrust of this passage, Romans 1, required eyes of faith. What I called love for my lesbian partner, God called defilement. When God gives a people over to sin, we seem to go blind and deaf and dumb all at once. Therefore, Romans 1, verses 24 to 28 is of indispensable importance to the doctrine of the gospel. This is the Bible's witness on homosexuality, our nation's reigning idol. From the point of view of individual homosexuals, of which I was once one, this is not how it feels. But from God's omniscient and holy point of view, this is what it means. One night I prayed and ask God if the gospel message was for someone like me too. Man, that almost breaks your heart to hear that because as a pastor, I'm wondering, is that how, is that how I'm preaching the gospel? That anybody would hear the proclamation of the free offer of the grace of God and think, that's for me. Not wonder, is that for me too? Yes, it's for you too. <laughs> she said, I prayed and asked God if the gospel message was for someone like me too. I viscerally felt the living presence of God as I prayed. Jesus seemed present and alive. I knew that I was not alone in my room. I prayed that if Jesus was truly a real and risen God, that he would change my heart. And if he was real, and if I was his, I prayed that he would give me the strength of mind to follow him and the character to become a godly woman. I prayed for the strength of character to repent for a sin, that at that time didn't feel like sin at all. It felt like life, plain and simple. I prayed that if my life was actually his life, that he would take it back and make it what he wanted it to be. I asked him to take it all, my sexuality, my profession, my taste, my books, and my tomorrows. And then this last section here. The journey out of lesbianism had many dimensions, and the Lord was gracious in leading me a small step and then burning the bridge I crossed to keep me safely closer to him. From the first night, there was no going back, she says. Slowly but steadily, my feelings did start to change. Feelings about myself as a woman and feelings about what sexuality really is and what it really isn't. I, like most everyone who identified as gay or lesbian, felt very comfortable, very at home in my body, in my lesbianism. One doesn't repent for a sin of identity in one session. Sins of identity have multiple dimensions, and throughout this journey, I have discovered different facets of my sin. I don't mean different incidents or examples of the same sin, but different facets of sin, how pride, for example, informed my decision-making. I still walk this journey. Well, I hope that was clear to you. You can certainly read more of that in her book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, that she wrote in 2015. But that was one more, I say historical figure, because she's already written three books and has become a trusted voice in evangelicalism. And many people who struggle with the same sexual sins that she did have found comfort and hope and just endurance through her testimony, just seeing she's walked, she's walked with the Lord now for 20 years. 20 years. She's married now. She has children now. Amazing testimony. Praise God for that. Well, this is, this is basically what we're looking at today. We're continuing our walk in the dark. In verse 18, it says, 
that people that have been made aware of God, he's manifested himself through general revelation, through conscience, the complexities of the world. God has made himself known. All of creation preaches a sermon. Even if you're blind and you can't see like Helen Keller, your conscience tells you that there's an intelligent designer who wants to know you. But Romans 1 talks about what happens when a person or a group of people suppress that. They suppress that knowledge. They hold it down. They cover it up in an unrighteous lifestyle like Rosaria did for years. What happens to them? The Bible says that God's wrath is revealed to them. And that's not talking about a wrath that's coming in the future where Jesus is going to come back and judge the wicked or the wrath that's going to happen when we die in unbelief, not knowing Jesus as our Savior and stand before the wrath of God. This is talking about a present reality wrath happening right now that the verb tense is in the present. It's happening. It's being revealed. All you got to do is look around. That's why that tsunami wreckage I chose this as a graphic. Take a walk through the, through the darkness and see what Paul is telling us will happen when God gives us over to our desires. Three different times we see it in this passage. So that's really what this message is about. When God gives us what we want, when he gives us our precious thing that, that's overpowering and has controlled our life, what happens to us? What happens? We're going to look and see three different things here that happen in the, in the outline today. Well, this was actually last week. <laughs> last week we saw we reap what we sow, we replace what we reject, because three different times in this passage we see fallen human beings who rejected God replaced God. Because we're worshipers, you can't turn that off. You've got to just choose a different object of worship, right? And if it's not God, it will eat you alive, and that's what we see here. So they reject God, the Creator, and they replace Him. They turn the Genesis creation narrative on its head. First there was God, and then there was man, woman, the, 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 the birds of the air that fly above the earth, the beasts that roam on the earth, and then the bugs and the fleas and the lizards that crawl. They've turned all of that on its head, and they've deified something in creation because we're worshipers, and they've exchanged God for that. And then the last thing we saw is we become what we worship. Idolatry throughout the Bible tells you that. You become the object that you worship. You become like it. And idols, we know, are deaf and blind and dumb and insensitive and imperceptible and unfeeling and senseless and unclean in many occasions. The, the, the things that people carve and bow down and worship are unclean and immoral. And the Bible says you become what you worship. Instead of being conformed to the image of Christ, you become deaf and dumb and blind and, and without sense. So here's the outline for today. What happens when God gives us over and gives us what we want. Three things happen that we see in this passage. And it's all related to being broken, brokenness. Here's what happens when God gives you what you want. You break. You break and everything around you begins to crumble and, and shatter on the floor. Your life right in front of you, everything. Your guidance, your GPS, your navigation control, broken. You don't know where you're going anymore. You have no satellite no GPS, nothing reliable, everything is going to mislead you. We see that. Secondly, no boundaries, no limits. When you violate the very fabric that God has hardwired into his creation and into his creatures, when you reject that, those boundaries disappear. Whereas before, this, this was acceptable. This was the way God made things. Well, not anymore. God gives you what you want. There's no boundaries. There's no limits. If it feels good, do it. If you want it, take it. And third, broken relationships, which is what the first two lead to. Everything you touch, you taint, you stain, you corrupt, and you harm. You notice just a trail of conflict following you. That list, the last part that Brent read in verse 31, that's a terrible list that you're going to find repeated multiple times in the New Testament. And that's always the fruit, the bitter, ugly, unclean fruit of idolatry. You become an angry, malicious person. And it deforms all of your relationships. You don't flourish anymore. You don't thrive anymore. There's conflict and hate and violence and sometimes death. So that's the outline for today. And it all corresponds really to, to these three parts of the passage. Can you guys see this? This is really important. Really important. When you see something one time in Scripture, it's important. When you see it twice, God's grabbing you, as it were, by the face and saying, hey, don't miss this. If it's three times, it's almost like God saying, smack, smack, smack. Look at this. Don't forget this. This is what happens 
when we reject God and suppress the truth, God gives us over. See that three times. God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up. It's a Greek word, and it means, it, it means to give somebody over to their enemies. Paradidomi in Greek. It's, it's what's described of, of Jesus. He was delivered up to Pontius Pilate. He was delivered up to the Jews. He was delivered up to the Romans. He was paradidomy. He was given over to his enemies. And when we suppress the truth about God and reject God and we fail to honor God and acknowledge God, that's exactly, that's exactly the regress that happens. God says, fine. I'm going to, Oscar Wilde, definitely not sympathetic to Christianity. I told you last week, he was a homosexual and he said this, when the gods desire to punish us, they answer our prayers. That gripped me. When the gods desire to punish us, you know what they do? They say, your wish is my command, like an evil genie, right? Except God's not evil. He's fair. He's just. He says, I'm going to give you exactly what you want so that you can see what life on your terms is going to look like. It's not going to go well for you, and I've warned you repeatedly, but you've pushed and pushed and held down and suppressed, and so I'm going to let you taste the bitter fruit of your own choices. So he gives them up. Uh, the first time it says, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. That's verse 24. But what follows that in verse 21 is this. Let me read this again. If you weren't here last week, this, this will be a two-minute summary, okay? Verse 21 says, Therefore, excuse me, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. That word honor, it means approve. They knew enough about God to know, I don't want Him. I don't want Him tampering with my life. Get away. I don't approve of him. Dokimos, it means approve. They didn't approve of God, so guess what God did? He didn't approve of them. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. That means fruitless and empty and desolate. So here's a human being, and he's a thinking person. He has a mind. And because he rejected God, it says here, that his mind grew futile and empty, empty, desolate, vain, worthless, and their foolish hearts were darkening. So here's your mind and here's your heart. Your mind is desolate and your heart is dark. <laughs> I mean, your heart is your mission control center. That's how you navigate and find your way. And God says, step one is I'm going to turn the lights out on you. You're going to reject me and repress me and suppress me. I'm going to turn the lights off and your mind's going to become worthless. I mean, I'd, I have a hundred word pictures to give you, and this morning, my wife can tell you, I was scrambling, saying, it's too much, it's too much, I, can't, I need more time, I need another day, I need to I'll preach on this next week and, and, and pull an audible. Have you ever driven and your headlights went out? Now, back in the day, this happened a lot, but now with all the computer systems, you have like week-long week warning signs on your dash, you know. Has that ever happened to you? And, now, I lived in Arkansas, and it's happened to me a few times. On a dark country road, not on an interstate where they have lights every, you know, 50 feet. And when you're going 60, all right, 70 miles an hour down a dark, deserted country road, maybe gravel, and your headlights go off, and there's culverts and gullies and creeks and ditches, <laughs> it's pretty scary. You can't see where you're going. And that's the idea. That's the picture here. God says, you want to go in that direction, do you? Fine, but I'm taking my light, and I'm, I'm taking, you know, you hear, I'm taking up my toys, and I'm going home. It's like God says, I'm, I'm going to leave you alone, and they're like, fine, go. And he says, but just a minute, just a minute, I'm going to take some of my gifts with me. And you see how, how well your life goes when I take them, because everything I've given you was to help you flourish and thrive and live life my way. God's commandments are how life works best. They feel restrictive, but they're actually liberating if you ever look at them and follow them. And God says, I'm going to take all my stuff, and then you go ahead and see what happens. And Romans 1 says, this is what happens. Darkness and desolate mind, broken GPS, broken navigation system, doesn't work, no satellite. You're on your own. You're in the dark. That's what this is about. C.S. Lewis said this in Mere Christianity years ago. He said, unbelievers... Enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded and are therefore self-enslaved. See, this perceived freedom that we think we're going to get when we reject God and go our own way, that freedom is actually prison. It's a prison of our own making, and that prison turns into a tomb. 
That's where this passage ultimately ends. Those who do such things are deserving of what? Death. Death. I love what Eugene Peterson, if you've ever read the message, it's a really, really modern translation of the Bible. This is just a little sampling of of how he translated this passage. I think he nailed it. You know, people used to make fun of the message in academic circles that studied Greek. But I want to tell you, man, knowing just enough Greek to to be dumb, really not know what I'm doing at sometimes, (laughs) reading this, he nailed it. He, He got the thrust of this passage. Listen to this. God said, in effect, if that's what you want, that's what you get. It wasn't long before they were living in a pig pen, smeared with filth, filthy inside and out. And all this because they traded the true God for a fake God and worshiped the God they made instead of the God who made them. That's prison. That's a prison. So, point number one, broken guidance. I think we've already covered most of that. But, but look at verse 24. The first thing we're given over to is the lust of their hearts to impurity. The lust of their hearts. Now, this word, lust... You guys are going to have to pardon me for getting a little bit geeky here with Greek, okay? The New Testament was written in Greek, and man, it is a powerful language. It is an electric language. Unlike English, which is a great language. I love English. I love living in America. I barely know English, barely speak English. But when you study Greek, you see the wisdom of God in in making that the New Testament language, not just because the whole world was influenced by it and could read it, but just the, the specificity, the precision, the accuracy of it. This word lust... It is actually the word for two words in Greek, epithumeia. Epi means over. Thumeia is desire. Over desire. Think of it this way, overpowering desire. All-consuming desire. Uncontrollable desire. God gave them over to that. This desire, now the NIV translate this, sinful desires. And that's a good translation because most of the time, most of the time, when you see this word in the Bible... It's for evil because human beings, when they have a desire that's all-consuming, it's usually sinful and unclean, isn't it? I mean, I just have this overpowering desire to serve people. Rare. (laughs) It's really rare, all right? I have this overpowering desire to give all my money away. That's rare, too. Usually an overpowering and all-consuming desire is a sinful one. It's directed sinfully. So that's why the ESV rightfully translated this lust. God gave them over to this desire that controls them. It controls them. It's sitting in the driver's seat. What would happen? I mean, you're driving down a country road, the lights are out, uh, and you're speeding, and then all of a sudden this over-controlling desire is in the driver's seat, and you're not. (laughs) I mean, it just gets worse. It's a downward spiral in the darkness. This is not just you're in the dark. This is the dark is in you. You know, tales from the dark side. Darkness is waiting to enter you. It's entered you, and this is what happens. You, can, you continue your downward spiral. Navigation system is broken. So, so what does this overpowering control lead to? Well, it says, it says impurity. It leads to impurity. It leads, you can see it. I can't see it. That's okay, as long as you can see it up here. It leads to impurity, and that word just simply means unclean. It leads to something that is that is unclean, and that is immoral. Unclean and immoral. This is like falling on a spiritual grenade, pulling the pin. <laughs> You're rejecting God. You want freedom. you got this overpowering control that God says, finally, ha- fine, have it your way. And it's like you've pulled the pin on a grenade and you fall on it spiritually. And you're just waiting for what's going to happen. And it leads you to impurity. This is is what's really interesting here because when when we're told that the navigation control system is broken, that that doesn't really grip us like I think it should. Did you hear what Rosaria Butterfield said? She said that... uh, it didn't, it didn't feel wrong. She didn't feel like she was sinning or that she needed to repent because it started out small and then it became all-consuming, and which became normal for her. I bought my son a, a, a scope for his air gun, his air pellet rifle, and we had the father-son joy of sighting that thing in together. Have you guys ever, if you don't hunt or own guns, that's okay, but have you, have you ever tried to, uh, to sight in some type of scope or binoculars or something? 
Maybe a scope's a better analogy, a better illustration here. Because I learned really fast, we were doing this in our backyard in Deland. We got just enough room back there to, to sight it in. We put a target up about 50, 50 60 feet away. And, and I would take this scope. And you know how you sight them in? You, you cl- there's clicks. It's really, really cool and fancy. One little click right here. You can, it's, it's almost imperceptible. You can't even see it with the scope. It's like, man, did I even, Jackson, did we even do anything? And I said, I don't know. Let's see. Let's sight it in and, and see. And you shoot him. And like, man, now it shoots two, two yards to the right. What the heck? What happened? I'm like, surely you missed, buddy. Surely you missed that. Try again. Nope. Two yards over. One click. That's, that's what happens spiritually. That's what's going on in this passage. We think it's just one little thing. I mean, it's not a, bi- it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. Just one click. But down the road, <laughs> it's a huge deal. You're like way over here. Way over here into impure territory. That's what the Apostle Paul is telling us here. And in fact, to, you, to keep the target analogy, the very first part of this passage says they've traded the glory of the Creator for the, the corruption of the creature, right? So glory is supposed to be the target that we aim at. We're not even aiming at that anymore. We're aiming at some impure, over-controlling desire. This is what Rosaria said. She's saying it a little bit different here. Listen to this. The Bible told me to repent, but I didn't feel like repenting. How do you repent for a sin that doesn't feel like a sin? I didn't understand why homosexuality was a sin, why something in the particular manifestation of same-gender love was wrong in itself. But I did know that pride was a sin. This was interesting in her book. I did know that pride was a sin, and so I decided to start there. As I began to pray and repent, I wondered, could pride be the root of all my sins? I wondered. This is what's interesting to me. I think, now hear me out, okay? Don't leave here thinking I said something that I didn't. I think if we read this passage and walk away from it only as seeing homosexuality, uh, the practice of homosexuality as a sin, I think we've really missed something powerful here that Paul's telling us. Not to say that if you don't struggle with that particular sin, you may leave feeling smug and self-righteous, right? I think what Paul is telling us here is if you rewind the tape, failing to acknowledge and honor and thank God is going to lead to a whole host of sins that are out of your control. One of them being this, homosexuality, dishonoring your bodies, impure, over-controlling desires, doing what is contrary to nature. That's a particular manifestation of idolatry. It's not the only one. It's a powerful one. And it's one that we're seeing on a world stage right now, especially in our nation. Because same-sex union was legalized in 2015 in every state, and they just sent the Equality Act in February to the Senate. It's a waiting on vote there, which comes into play at the very end of this passage, too. Not only do they do these things, but they give hearty approval to those who do. That's kind of where we're at as a nation right now. The world has been there, and now America's catching up with that, right? So I think if we just view this passage as a charge against homosexuality, it certainly is that. It's not less than that, but I think it's more than that too. There's something here for all of us, patterns and signs for all of us to ask God to help us see and turn from and repent of and to be merciful to those who are stuck in that prison and need rescue. So she says pride. I wonder if pride was the root of all of that. Pride is powerful, ladies and gentlemen. It was behind the first sin of Lucifer wanting to be like the Most High. It was at the first sin of Adam and Eve when they plunged humanity into sin. It's about being your own king, living life on your terms. That's what pride really is. I'm going to live life on my terms. I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. And nobody's going to tell me what to do. This is my body. This is my life. This is my money. These are my relationships. They're mine. You don't have to teach a kid that word, do you? They already know it. It's like they come out saying it. (laughs) And you know what? They carry that with them into adulthood. And unless the Spirit of God interrupts that and corrects that, it manifests itself in a whole bunch of ugly ways. Do you remember in the book of Judges, there's this refrain that keeps coming up, you guys that love the Old Testament. It says, there was no king in Israel in those days. And then what's the next thing? You remember? And every man did what was right in his own eyes. 
No king, no authority, no GPS. Well, if it feels good, do it. If you want to do it and nobody can stop you, go ahead, do it. There's no consequences. Oh, careful. No, there are. Ugly, powerful consequences. Jen Wilkins said this. She said, delight yourself in lawlessness and your disordered desires will govern you. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you new desires. I like that. I like how Paul interrupts his whole train of thought and he says, the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And then he continues. He couldn't even mention the name of God without pausing to acknowledge Him and to worship Him and to praise Him. And I think that's a little secret window into how change happens. Who's the object of your over-controlling desires? Is it God or is it some impure and base thing? That word impure, by the way, maybe this will help you. I'm trying to give you some word pictures. That word impure, it's catharsis. Do you know what catharsis is? It's like purging something, cleaning it out, getting rid of all the, the dross and the impurities, right? We say things like, well, that was cathargic, right? That was cleansing. In Greek, cathargic means the opposite. It's like you turn the backflow, all the sludge comes back. Everything vile and filthy and immoral and unclean and inappropriate and contrary to nature. When you reject God, suppress the truth, and let your over-controlling desires drive the truck, you're turning on that faucet. How would you like to, to get in a bathtub and say, man, I'm so ready to get clean, and you turn, and you're like, the pressure is wonderful, and all of a sudden, here comes the filth, just the most vile and disgusting stuff. Not just homosexuality. I'm talking about the whole list here. The whole list at the very bottom here is just vile and filth. Ah, catharsis. That's what this leads to. That leads to dishonoring our bodies. That word dishonoring, it means to mistreat. By the way, verse 24, I believe, is talking about heterosexual sins of any kind. Pornography, an affair, an abuse, anything illicit. The homosexuality comes in the next part, but it's, it's, it's the very beginnings. It's they mistreated their body and the bodies of others. They treated it shamefully and in a way that was inappropriate, in a way that God did not create it to be treated Impurity leads to the dishonoring of their bodies. And then what's next is, verse 2, for this reason God gave them over to dishonorable passions. God gave them over to dishonoring passions. And this is broken boundaries. When your GPS and your navigation controls are broken, then there's nowhere that you won't go. There's nowhere you, you don't feel like you can go. You can go at no limits. When I grew up as a teenager, that was a marketing campaign. I don't remember if it was a product, a t-shirt. There was no fear and no limits, right? That's, that's like this passage. No fear of, of wrath or consequence or persecution and no limits. I'll go wherever I want. And it says the, the first step led to the second step. These people kept exchanging. They exchanged the glory of God to corruption. They exchanged the truth for the lie. And then they exchanged natural relations for perverted relations. And God says, he gave them up to dishonorable passions. That's verses 26 and 27. Let me just read those. Are you guys still with me? If I'm getting too technical, don't tell me. Just be quiet and you can tell me later. Because <laughs> that'd be awkward, wouldn't it? If somebody said, hey, <laughs> for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. That word contrary to nature, when Paul wrote Romans, that was understood even by unchristian people and in the Greco-Roman world that it was for homosexual relationships. Contrary to nature, verse 27, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed. That means to burn, to be inflamed. They were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Broken boundaries. You know, God established boundaries when He created the world. Some of those you can see in the universe. The moon with the tides, the seasons. And you can't really do anything to those, can you? You can't really tamper with them. Some people would argue we tamper with the weather. I, I don't know. 
Some things you can't tamper with, but there's other things that you can. God created divine laws that govern us. They're part of the fabric of living life God's way, and they're how life works best. But when we reject God and we rush headlong into idolatry, we begin to press against those boundaries. Even though we thrive in those boundaries and we need freedom, those boundaries provide some of those boundaries are spatial. Let me give you an example. Uh, here's a venue for playing football. Here's a venue for playing baseball. You can play both of those at the same time. But when you try to play both of those in the same space, confusion ensues, right? Some boundaries are, are spatial. Some are temporal. Usually about 10 p.m. to 5 or 6 a.m., those are the hours for what? Sleeping. And the other hours are for working and playing. Now, if you reverse those, and I had to when I worked as an overnight security guard in California, and it wrecked me. <laughs> if you reverse those, it's probably going to take you into strange places. So some boundaries are, are spatial. Some boundaries are temporal. Some boundaries are relational. Some boundaries are relational. It's not okay for strangers to touch my body. We tell that to our children, right? Unless it's your doctor and we're in the room. So there's, with some boundaries, there's some exceptions. If we listen closely to the Bible's sexual ethics, we're going to find clear, beautiful, wise, and safe boundaries for sex and a whole arena for other kinds of intimate connection. God's given us sexual boundaries too, hasn't He? And when we rush headlong into idolatry, we begin to push against those boundaries and actually try and destroy those boundaries. This is what Rebecca McLaughlin wrote. She wrote a book called Confronting Christianity, and uh, it's, it's, one of the, it's one of the best treatments on homosexuality I've ever read. She struggled with same-sex attraction. She grew up in a Christian home, and she had unwanted same-sex attraction. She would describe it that way. She wasn't attracted to members of the opposite sex, and it grieved her. She didn't want that. She knew that was not what God's plans were for her ultimately, and she prayed against it and asked God to fix her and to heal her, and she still struggled with that all the way up through college. And so she married. She married a godly man. She has two children. She, she wrote, this is a quote of what she says in the book, within a Christian framework, opposite sex, heterosexual, opposite sex, heterosexual marriage is set apart as the only place for sexual intimacy. This boundary cuts off the possibility of sex with anyone else. Couldn't get any clearer, could it? It is highly restrictive and in some respects against our inclinations. Few married people never have the desire for sexual intimacy with someone other than their spouse. Thus, every Christian is called at times to sacrifice his or her desires but marriage also creates immense freedom and security for loving sexual intimacy without fear of critique or abandonment. Just love that. Very, very careful and very clear the way she wrote about that. And she also goes on in that book to address the, uh, to address the, the challenge that some homosexuals have when they say, how can, how can you tell me to, to deny myself? I'm trying, to be, I'm trying to affirm myself and be true to myself. How can, how can you tell me to, to deny myself? And she says the answer to that is that God calls everybody to deny themselves. Right? Is that not what the gospel call is? You know what the world's going to tell you? Let me get in everybody's kitchen for a minute, okay? Here's what the world's going to tell you. Be true to yourself. You be you. You do you. You be true to yourself. Don't you dare let anybody dash your hopes and your dreams and whatever your, your heart wants. You be true to yourself. You need to get affirmed. And you need positive vibes. And then here comes the gospel. Here comes Jesus. And Jesus himself said this. He said, he who loves his life will lose it. He who loves his life will lose it. He who gives up his life will gain it, will find it. He says, deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow me. And what Rebecca McLaughlin is saying in that chapter is that all of us have a cross to pick up. You have yours and I have mine. Some of our crosses will be different than others. If you struggle with same-sex attraction, you've got a different cross to pick up than some other Christians are going to have, but you've got to pick it up. 
She fought against that her entire life with female chastity and repentance when it was necessary. And with prayer, she mortified, mortified the flesh. She killed her flesh. She said, Lord, heal me. Lord, fix me. Lord, give me grace. Give me strength. Give me power. And I will say this. Maybe you have a heterosexual cross to pick up and deny. Maybe you've got passions that are impure, that manifest differently than verse 26 and 27. Maybe yours are verse 24. Then you're dishonoring your body or somebody else's body in a way that pushes against those boundaries. And God's telling you to repent and pick up your cross. We've all got to, if we're only telling people that struggle with same-sex attraction to, to do radical sacrifice, we're missing a point because we're all called to do radical sacrifice. We're all called to radical self-denial. And the Bible says horrible consequences follow a refusal to do that. Excuse me, to do that. You break, we break boundaries. When God gives us over, our GPS, our navigation controls break, and our boundaries break. You know, there's boundaries in friendship. And when you toss caution to the wind and you say, I have this, this impure, this, this thing that's contrary to nature, men with men and women with women, you break the friendship boundary and you turn it into something sexual, and that's sinful, that's wrong. We're wired to have intimate friendships with people, but not sexually, not with the same sex. God didn't make the moral fabric of the universe that way. And he didn't make it within families either to be sexual. You know, there's a story in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel 13, right after David committed adultery with Bathsheba, possibly rape, we don't know. Right after that chapter, you know, Nathan the prophet, God through him says, the sword will not depart from your house. In the very next chapter, we read about two of David's children with different, different wives, same father, Amnon and Tamar. Have you ever read this story? Amnon was a young man, and he had his half-sister, Tamar, and it says that he saw that she was beautiful and he desired her. That's his half-sister, so that's wrong, okay? Even though it's his half-sister, it's still wrong. <laughs> I'm illustrating a point here about boundaries. It said he desired her so powerfully, he tormented himself and became sick. <laughs> man, doesn't the Bible have human, humanity pegged? And he had a friend who wasn't really a friend that said, hey, why are you sick, buddy? You're the king's son, for crying out loud. If you want it, get it. I'll help you. So they devised this scheme where he was going to pretend to be sick. And King David came to him and said, what's going on? He said, I'm just sick. Can you ask my half-sister, Tamar? Tell her to, to cook some cakes for me and bring it to me. And so she did. And here's what happened. Let me read this to you. He took hold of her and said, come, lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you, but he would not listen to her. I think, by the way, what she's saying is just, she's just trying to get out of the moment. <laughs> Go talk to our father. Talk to him. Let me out of here. She's not saying, yeah, he'll give you. Anyway, but he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. And I'll put it in modern translation, he raped his half-sister. So what happens when you get what you want? That was this controlling desire that was impure, and God gave him over to it, and he, and he seized her, and he raped her, and he got what he wanted. So surely he's going to be happy, right? Listen to the Bible, folks. This is amazing to me. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. <laughs> everything breaks. When God gives us over, everything breaks. Our navigation system breaks. Our boundaries break. Our relationships break. God says, that's what you want? I'll give it to you, and you're going to wreck everything. And that's exactly what happened. And then he said to her, get up, get out. In Hebrew, in Hebrew, he says, up, out, and then he called his servant, bolt the door. That's amazing, and that's a true story. That's not a parable. That happened. And that happens, too, when we break boundaries with friendships and within marriage. Everything breaks. I was listening to a podcast by Jen Oshman this week uh, called All Things, Honey. Is that what it's called? And she was giving some sobering statistics. Did you know within the last... From 2012 to 2021, nine years or so, 
there has been a, I'm not misquoting here, there's been a 1,000 to 5,000 percent increase on young preteen and teenage white females who have uh, gender dysphoria and want to transition. One to 5,000 percent increase, increase. That's gripping. That's gripping. That's God giving a person or a group of people over to this overpowering desire. And you read on down the passage, and people that, that, that encourage it, and they say, go ahead and do it. And now there's being laws that are put in place that are going to protect that, and they're going to call those civil, civil rights, civil liberties, freedoms. Where if a young teenage girl is at a public school and she has gender dysphoria and she fears what her parents may think, she can go to the guidance counselor and can get put in touch with some hormones and get a doctor's appointment and she can change her pronouns without her parents ever being told. That's amazing to me. And I'm not saying that to throw rocks at a school. I'm saying this passage, when, when Paul says the wrath of God is being revealed, it's all around us. It's here. It's all around us. It's just reality of 2021. Paul does not speak in generalities. He is getting very specific about the dangers of idolatry. You can try and reconcile a homosexual lifestyle with the Bible, but you're going to fail. Many people have tried. The language in this, in fact, I've read, I have read the testimony of people living a homosexual lifestyle who have not converted and don't want to convert, but they're scholastic, they're scholastic, and they've studied original language, and they've looked at Romans 1 and said, it's inescapable. There's no way you can, you can say, well, God's okay as long as it's long-term monogamous relationships, one male and another male, and they're just faithful to one another for life. No, this does not condone that at all. It doesn't. I just want to be clear. I know I haven't preached on this in the last seven years, just touched on it here and there, and so this is my opportunity to tell you, in no way, shape, form, or fashion can you ever go to the Bible and make it say that same-sex relationships are okay at all. God loves us too much to let us walk away from the Bible and think that, but you're going to be able to go out and find some biblical scholars who are maybe more progressive and liberal who try to make that argument, and it fails. It doesn't work. Rosaria Butterfield even read some of them when she was being convicted, and she said, it never made sense to me. <laughs> that doesn't square with this passage here. So God loves us too much to let us think that it will be okay or that it's safe or that it's not dangerous or that he's happy as long as it's a certain type of homosexual union. He's not. That's breaking the boundary. And the last point here, and I'm, I'm totally out of time, but if you look at the, if you look at the last part of this passage, Verse 29, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. That word debased, it just means counterfeit, misleading, broken, disapproved. It's a disapproved mind that God gave them over to. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder. Now, this is just in case... There's a little spark of self-righteousness when you think, well, I'm, I'm glad I've never struggled uh, with living a sinful lifestyle of homosexuality. I just want you to know there's something here for all of us. Idolatry has consequences for anybody and everybody. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, Disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Those last four, the, the summary of what those words mean is they don't have feeling. They don't have empathy. They don't have compassion. Have you ever been in a relationship with a friend or somebody else and they, they're unfeeling? It's like you're hurting and they, they have no category to feel empathy or compassion or pity towards you. Have you ever seen that? We, we have a word for this. We have a name for it. You know what it is? Narcissus. Like this whole passage. If you want to know what a narcissist is and the fruit of it, here's your diagnosis from your pastor right here. No feeling, no sense, no comprehension, no understanding. 
foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. So when you read this last list, this is, by the way, the third and last point, broken relationships. When you give yourself entirely to idolatry, you're a narcissist. You can't have a meaningful, flourishing, thriving relationship with anybody. You've broken it. God's let you do what you wanted to do, and it's broken it. This is economic disorder, greed. Social disorder, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. Family breakdown, disobedience to parents. And relational breakdown, senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. That's what theologians call total depravity. It means every area of your life is somehow touched and affected by sin, every relationship. Well, listen, guys, I don't want to, I don't want to end on a... I don't want to end on a dark note. This has been kind of a dark passage. you see why I called it a walk in the dark? But I want to encourage you, okay? I want to encourage you with two passages, real quick. Here's one of them. Paul wrote to a church in Corinth, the center of the Greek world at that time. All the sexual perversion had invaded that city. And here's what he said of that church. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Did you guys hear that? Did you read that? And such were some of you. Past tense. But you were sanctified. No, excuse me. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Don't ever let anybody tell you that God can't change and transform your heart. There were people that had rushed headlong into homosexuality and all the other sins there, sexual immorality of every kind, and God said, Paul says, that was you, but that's not you any longer. God's rescued you. And here's, here's the last verse to encourage you. You know that word I told you about earlier, epithumeo, over-desire, and it's most of the time it's translated as sinful. I want to show you one time it's not. Check this out. He's talking about the gospel here, Peter is. The things that have been now announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels desire or long to look. You know what that word long is? Epithumeo. Now check this out. Here's the good news of the gospel. Here's what Jesus Christ did for you. You talk about darkness, Jesus entered darkness of, of his Father's wrath. You talk about broken, Jesus was broken for us. We celebrate that every first Sunday here. The bread was broken, the blood was shed. And angels see that. Now check this out. That wasn't even for angels. <laughs> angels have no chance at redemption when they fell. Lucifer's done and all the fallen angels that followed him from heaven in rebellion. But the, but the elect angels... They look at the gospel. They look at, at what Christ did. And it's this overpowering desire to know more about it. They're like eternally curious. The word picture is somebody stooping down like on the edges of their seat looking down into something. And I love that. That tells me when you behold Christ and all that he is for us, his power, his beauty, that's more controlling and powerful and guiding than all this other stuff. So if you're on a path to idolatry, you don't have to be. The remedy is repent. Repent, turn. That word repentance, it just means a change, a change in mind that leads to a change in life. Recognize, acknowledge, Lord, I have been going this way, and I feel, I feel darkness entering me, and I don't want it. I want your help. I want your rescue. That's the answer. That's the remedy. Let the overpowering urges and, and control be the good kind of lust, lusting for Christ in the right way, the righteous way. Well, guys, thank you for being patient. I've gone, I've gone longer than I probably should have, but I wanted to finish chapter one. And I want to close our message with just a reminder. We have a prayer team back here this morning. If you want to pray or talk about anything, I want you to know you can come and talk to any of us. I would imagine you could probably talk to anybody in this church that would give you an understanding and compassionate ear and pray with you and keep whatever you share confidential. And you can certainly talk with me. So I'm going, to invite, I'm going to invite you, my friend, Vitaly, to come. And we have a, a song of reflection called our Selah song. 
And you can just sit quietly in your seat and pray, reflect on what you've heard, and our prayer team is going to be in the back, and then we're going to have three quick announcements, and we're going to send you on your way. So pray with me, would you? Lord, thank you so much for the clarity and the truth of this passage. This is a hard passage, Lord, to wrap our minds around. It's, it's scary. It's sobering. It's serious. But it's your truth, and you love us, Lord. You gave us to this because you love us, and you want us to flourish and thrive You don't want us to to break the GPS that you gave us and our conscience and and the commandments, and you don't want us to break the boundaries that you've set for us and the moral fabric of the universe, and you certainly don't want us to break all the relationships you've entrusted to us. So I pray you would grant us repentance, help us to see the truth that this passage talks about, to understand that Jesus died for all of our sins, and he he wants to be in a relationship with us and change our desires, and change our heart. And He is ready, and able, and willing right now to do that. And He would not desire for anybody to go down the path that Paul talks about here, but to turn and look to Him, and invite, and beg for help. May we do that now, all of us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.